Revelation chapter 2. We're actually going to be getting through two of these letters this morning, the letter to the church in Smyrna and the letter to the church in Pergamum. But friends, we need to understand this. The need for the church to endure implies that there is a reason for believers to stand up for the goodness and the truth of Jesus Christ. When we talk about endurance, we talk about things like running a marathon, performing a task that is exceptionally difficult for us. We talk about climbing a mountain. It doesn't take endurance to sit on the couch all day long. It is something that we pour effort into that might even give us some resistance. But this is what endurance means, and it implies that the Christian needs to press forward for the cause of Jesus Christ. For a whole host of reasons, there are cultural systems And there are often individual and even relational reasons that exert enough pressure to make us question whether or not sticking with Jesus Christ is actually worth it. But every one of those kinds of reasons is a reason for the Christian and a reason for the church to endure, to know that Christ is true, to know that Christ is good, and to live as if all of that is true. That all that Christ says is true and that all that He gives us in this life is good. And it's been this way for the Christian church off and on, friends, for 2,000 years now. You may remember that Jesus actually told His disciples in the Gospels, if they oppose Me and you look a little bit too much like Me, they will oppose you as well. But the opposition to the Christian faith is never the end of the story. It never has the final word. It is never the most powerful thing inside of the room. Now, the next two churches that we read actually give us this profound and great witness to us. Even if they stumble along the way, they are profound witness to us in their endurance for the cause of Jesus Christ. So in these two letters, a few things that we're going to sort of pay attention to as we go along. First of all, our witness is more important than the opposition. Now, that's important because the opposition wants us to believe exactly the opposite. We're going to oppose the faith. We're going to make it difficult. We're going to make you feel bad for standing up for Christ. We're going to impose a certain kind of peer pressure upon you to make you believe that the opposition is more important than the witness. But the Christian sees it the other way around. So our witness is more important than whatever opposition that we face as followers of Jesus Christ. We're also going to pay attention to how testing refines our faith. Part of what's interesting in these two letters, and one of the reasons we're putting them together, is that Satan plays an explicit role in both of these letters in both of these churches. He's mentioned twice, or he's mentioned in both letters. He's mentioned three times, he's mentioned in both of these letters. He plays an explicit role. Satan's goal when we are tested is to separate us from the grace of Jesus Christ to separate us from the belief in what is true about Jesus Christ. But what can happen instead when the church learns to endure and the church learns to be wise and the church learns to be loving in truth, like we talked about last week, what can happen instead of separating us from the grace of Christ is that our faith grows stronger and God is glorified in our lives. How testing refines or deals with our faith. 
And then we're going to finish with this thought, how Jesus comforts us in our distress. Whatever level it is, opposition in the act of enduring is going to involve a certain level of discomfort. It's going to involve some work. It may even involve some distress. But how does Jesus come to us in our distress? When we face confusion and we face opposition, often what we want, and we go to Christ with this kind of prayer, Jesus, I want you to take care of this. I need the answer to this question. I need to know what's going to happen now with this. We're asking for specific details to specific questions. What often happens is that Jesus gives us something else entirely different, and it surprises us at first. It may even confuse us at first. But what Jesus gives us in the opposition that we face is far greater than all those other things in the long run. What he gives us is his attention. What he gives us is his love. He gives us his power. What Jesus gives us is himself. So let's begin reading. We're now at the letter to the church in Smyrna, and we're going to pick up in verse 8. So, Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, let's read this letter. In the angel to the church in Smyrna, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. You kind of slow down and you think through, well, this is the stuff that Jesus wanted to say to this church. So this church is, is either currently going through something significant or, as Jesus says it in this letter, is about to go through something significant. So there's a lot of heavy stuff important stuff inside of this letter. If you received a letter from Jesus Christ, I guarantee you this isn't the one you would want to get. <laughs> You're going to suffer tribulation, be faithful unto the death, right? You would feel, what is, what's going on? But here's what Jesus does. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write. Now, part of what's interesting inside of these letters from Ephesus to Philadelphia, the seventh letter, is that these letters are written in what was the uh, postal, postal root order. So a letter that would go to Ephesus and then be circulated among the churches, the next church it would go to was Smyrna, the next church it would go to was Pergamum, and on and on and on and on. But Smyrna is another coastal city. It's another large city. It's another important city. And for the next couple hundred years in the life of the early church, the Christians in the city of Smyrna are a significant part of the growth of the early church. Some very significant individuals in early church history come out of this church. So this is a significant group of people, a significant group of Christians. And Jesus introduces himself this way, the words of the first and the last who died and who came to life. Now, you may remember inside of these letters, there is a kind of form that all of these letters follow. Jesus introduces himself to each church. Now, the introduction, the form is the same, but Jesus introduces himself with a different characteristic. 
And then at the end of that letter, there's some form of, and to the one who conquers, I will give. There's a promise, an introduction and a promise. And all of those are different for all seven churches. But what those things do is they help give us a sense of the life of that church, those individuals. What is that church dealing with? Because Jesus knows what's going on, so he wants to remind them specifically of who he is. I am the first and the last who died and who came to life. So this letter is from the resurrected one, the resurrected Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This thing that is absolutely at the center of our faith, it is this powerful truth inside of the Christian faith. The image that Jesus uses here comes again from Revelation chapter 1. That's going to happen over and over through these seven letters. So Revelation 1 verses 17 and 18 say this, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. The fact that Jesus has power over death itself is critical to the believers in Smyrna. You're about to go through tribulation. I need you to be faithful even to the point of death. And if you do so, you will receive the crown of life. They are reminded again, and we need to be reminded again, that death in this physical life is immediate union with Jesus Christ forevermore. If you're a child of Jesus Christ, death in this life means entrance into life with Jesus Christ. So this is what he is telling them. Now remember, I'm the one who holds the keys of death itself. Death cannot separate us from Jesus Christ. It's a powerful and profound truth for every single one of us. So then Jesus says, and again, I love how the body of each of these letters begins. Just that, that simple verb, I know, I know, I know what you're going through. I see what you're going through. I know what's happening. I know your tribulation, and I know your poverty. Now, one of the powerful dynamics in the city of Smyrna was that it had a large and powerful and influential Jewish community. As we piece together um, early church history and what we know about the city itself, it just has this large and powerful and influential Jewish community. Now, there's, something, there's an interesting dynamic there because inside of the Roman Empire, the Jewish community, especially in these large cities, they had a certain kind of religious protection because of their cultural heritage, because of what they brought to the Roman Empire. They had a certain kind of religious protection. Now, not so for the early Christian church. The early Christians were the oddballs. They were the ones sort of on the outside of things. They weren't part of the Jewish community. Many of those were actually being saved and they actually were becoming a part of the Christian church. They, the Christians weren't a part of the larger Roman religious system. So the Christians were the oddballs out. In fact, it's very common in early literature for the Romans to refer to Christians as atheists. Now, why would the Romans do that? because the Christians wouldn't worship any of their gods. So it made no sense to the Romans. So they would accuse Christians of not worshiping any of these gods. They called them atheists. So Christians were kind of this oddball out. So this is where 
a lot of the opposition to the Christian church happened in the city of Smyrna. It would come from the Jewish population because the Romans would put pressure on the Jews thinking that the Christians were a part of the Jewish community. So then the Jewish community would put a lot of pressure on the church community as well. This is where a lot of the pressure would come from. So now get this. This is interesting. When Jesus says, those who believe, okay, and let's just actually read this. So know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, they're biological, they are actually children of Abraham, but they are not children of God and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So it refers to that group of people who are opposing the Christian church. Jesus says, now I know your poverty. And then the parenthetical statement says, but really, you're rich. The poverty of the church in Smyrna is an interesting thing. The early Christian church grew rapidly among the lower, lower classes in the Greco-Roman world. They found hope there. They found peace there. They found truth there. They found extended family there. So there's just the case that in the early church, that's probably just the demographics of most of the church in Smyrna. But again, as people piece together the history of this church, a lot of scholars believe that the church was made poor through what they suffered. The persecution that they suffered is that they had their property taken away from them. They had their right to perform their job inside of their guild or their union taken away from them by the Jewish community and by the Romans. So even those who had enough had it taken away from them because they were followers of Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, I know your poverty. But he says, in reality, you're rich because you're children of God. There's a physical, literal poverty that they're enduring, but there's a spiritual wealth that can never be taken away from them. It's a reminder of some things that Jesus said in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 10, verses 29 through 30 say this, Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. You might be giving things up in this world because you're a follower of me, Jesus says, but that in the end, is, that's not the end of the story. That's not the last thing that's going to happen to you. There is wealth in following Jesus Christ that this world simply cannot touch. There are things, Jesus says, that I can give you that the world cannot take away from you. So whatever you give up from my name, you're going to receive back over and over and over so Jesus tells this church in verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. The encouragement that this church receives is unique in its specificity. It's specific. Jesus says, I know this, and here's how it's going to happen. I, I want you to not fear what you're about to suffer. And then he says, for 10 days... You're going to endure tribulation, and I need you to be faithful even to the point of death, and you're going to receive the crown of life. 
Now, this kind of thing being written to these Christians in this city with all of these kinds of things that we've talked about already probably doesn't come as much of a surprise to them. They've gotten crossways with the cultural powers in their city. They've already suffered several things. And so when they hear this, it probably doesn't catch them off guard. But what it does do is it encourages them in some very specific ways. It reminds them of some very important things about what it means to follow Jesus Christ even while suffering for His name's sake. And the first is this. Jesus knows they have not been lost by their Savior. This so often is exactly the kind of thing that we suffer when we go through difficult times. We are tempted to believe that God is no longer with us. We are tempted to believe that He no longer sees and He no longer knows. But when Jesus says something like this to His people, suffering, it reminds them Jesus knows. They haven't been lost by their Savior, whatever it is they are going to suffer. And the second thing it reminds them of is something that you and I have to come to grips with sometimes. Christ is Lord even in our suffering. Suffering is going to happen. Tribulation is going to occur for this church. But notice who in the end is sovereign over all of it. It's going to happen for 10 days, no longer. Jesus is in charge of even things like this. Christ is sovereign. This kind of thing is a theme through the rest of the book of Revelation. If you haven't read it in a while, but you sit down and you read it, and you, you read through all the fantastic, incredible things that happen, the judgment that falls, the people who rebel, and uh, these images that are amazing and sometimes hard to figure out, if you're careful, you will read this over and over and over again. All of it is happening under the sovereignty of God. None of it is chaotic and out of control, but God is sovereign even in judgment. So he's telling his children, whatever it is you are going through, Satan doesn't have the last word. Those who oppose you are not in control of your opposition. I am still sovereign and you are still my children. So testing, testing will do one of two things to us when we have to endure, when we receive that blowback or that difficulty. Testing will do one of two things. Again, if Satan has his way, it will separate us from the grace of Jesus Christ. We will just simply think, well, this isn't worth it. The opposition is greater than my witness to Christ. The opposition is greater than any value I receive from following Jesus Christ, so I'm just going to drop it. And if so, Satan has had his way. We've separated ourselves from the grace of Jesus Christ. But as Christ tells His church, if we endure, you're going to receive the crown of life. The abundant life that Christ gives us in this life now and the promise of eternity with Him forever that no one can take away from us. I heard it put like this just yesterday, and I think this is really important. Suffering reveals our relationship with God up to that point. Suffering will reveal how you have been building or not building your relationship with Jesus Christ up to that point. This is how endurance gets traction in our futures. It does so 
by our faithfulness in the past. Your faithfulness to Jesus Christ, you building your relationship with Him, you listening to Him now is the kind of thing that builds the relationship with Him that allows us to endure when the moment comes. This relationship with Jesus Christ will be revealed when we are asked to endure. Stand up for Jesus Christ. What is your relationship with the Word of God? What does your prayer life actually look like? What is your relationship with the body of Christ like? This is one of the reasons that we gather together is for encouragement and strength for each other. We don't know every season of life that has walked into this room. We don't know what other people in this room are enduring, but we are here together worshiping Jesus Christ together. We are telling each other we are in this together for the cause of Jesus Christ. What is your relationship with the church like? Because that faithfulness now will be revealed in how we endure in the future. So Jesus tells this church, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Make sure you pay attention to what the Spirit is saying to his church. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So the promise to the Christians in Smyrna here, those who endure, even a physical death, is that they will not be hurt by what is called the second death. What on earth is the second death? Never mind, let's just move on. No, we're not going to do that. Second death is this really interesting term that shows up in the book of Revelation, and it comes to the surface right at the very end of the book. It comes to the surface in Revelation chapter 20, especially the end of Revelation chapter 20, and it's important that we understand the context there so that we understand what we mean by the second death. The end of Revelation 20 is the point at which the end of all things is happening. It's after what we sometimes call the millennial age is described in Revelation chapter 20. And what happens is what we often call the great white throne judgment. So the text says this at the end of Revelation chapter 20. All of heaven and earth, there's no space left for them. They're rolled up and they're gone. We're getting ready for a new heaven and a new earth, a brand new creation. So all of this is gone. And every human being is, this is amazing, but this is how it's described to us. Every human being is lined up before God as he sits on his throne and these books are open. And everyone, the text says, will be judged according to what they have done. And if their names are not found in the Lamb's book of life, then they're cast into what the text calls the second death. The second death, biblically speaking, is that final, eternal state without God. So the promise here to the church in Smyrna, to the one who conquers, will not be hurt by the second death. This is the promise of eternity with God. You won't be touched by any of that. An eternity without God. That's what the second death means there in Revelation chapter 20. We conquer, we endure, we walk with Jesus Christ until the very end, until the physical death of our lives, and we are found to be with Him forever. I want to put this letter together with the next one, also a little bit shorter, the letter to the church in Pergamum, and then put some of these thoughts together. So, Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 is the next letter. 
And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. It's absolutely fascinating stuff happening inside of these letters. So the, to the angel in the church of Pergamum, here's what I want you to write. I am, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. He is the one who addresses the church in Pergamum. This is also another image that comes from Revelation chapter 1. It's Revelation chapter 1 verse 16. Jesus describes him this way. But it also foreshadows again the end of the book, the end of the book in Revelation chapter 19. Now, for my money, Revelation chapter 19 is one of the most dramatic chapters in all of Scripture, and it includes Christ coming back to earth to conquer His enemies and set up the new age. And here's part of what that text says in Revelation 19. Now, remember, the one who holds the two-edged sword is talking to us now. From His mouth, this is Jesus riding on His white horse before the armies of the world arrayed against Him. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. There's not a more dramatic phrase in the New Testament. I don't know where it is. And on his robe and on his thigh he had a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In Revelation 19... All of humanity, what's left of humanity, and all of demonic power have literally arrayed themselves against Jesus Christ thinking we can kill God. Jesus shows up. This is how He shows up, and it's over like that because He is King of kings and He is Lord of lords, and He is the one who carries the sharp two-edged sword. So when He speaks to the church in Pergamum, there is no clearer image of the final and absolute and eternal power and authority of Jesus Christ. I need you to know that I carry the two-edged sword, and Rome does not. This is why this is important for this church. Rome does not. Your city streets are full of Roman soldiers. You're being governed by Roman counselors who have actually killed some of you already. But I need you to know I'm the one who holds the sword. So this clear image of the superiority and the power 
in the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. And then he goes straight into this. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. So Pergamum is an interesting city in one particular regard, and it's that uh, Pergamum had become a center for a lot of Greco-Roman and other pagan religions. So it was a city that was full of temples to Zeus and to Athena and to all types of other gods and goddesses. I forget the name of the god right now, but they were famous in their day for a temple to the Roman god of healing and medicine. Now, the Roman god of healing and medicine uh, either was always represented with or represented as a snake. So they had a temple that was covered in snakes in the city of Pergam. Now, who thinks that is an appealing temple, right? But they were also known for another kind of cult. It was called the imperial cult. They had erected a statue to Caesar. They had erected a temple, and this is how cities would do it. They would, they would erect this kind of temple to Caesar to worship uh, Caesar as a semi-deity, to worship Rome, the state of Rome, and it was an actual religion. They would put that uh, temple on the highest hill in the city so that everybody would know this is who rules us, this is who we worship, and it is the nation, the empire of Rome. So we've got a lot of pagan worship, but what we especially have in Pergamum is worship of the state, okay, is worship of an empire. Here's why this is important for us. First of all, scholars believe, again, that when Jesus refers to where Satan dwells, he's not necessarily referring to Zeus and Athena and all these other gods. Jesus is referring to the worship of Rome. He calls it actually where Satan dwells. It's important, friends, because we need need to watch this in our world and in our culture. Worship of the state is a growing religion in our culture, and I use that word on purpose. It is a growing religion, not just a political ideology. It's a religion, and it is an inevitable move inside of a culture. When a culture has decided that God is no longer important to the structure of that society, to the moral grounding of that society, to how our relationships work, and on and on and on. When we remove God, what human beings do is we latch on to the next biggest thing we can find, and the next biggest thing we can find throughout human history is the state. This is just what we do. We begin to worship the state instead of God because we've gotten rid of that other thing and we need something big to hold us together. The smaller God is in a culture, the bigger the state becomes. It's just human history. And people who argue for it throughout history, a larger and larger and larger state are inevitably those who want God to get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. But the bigger God gets, the smaller the state becomes. So in the worship of the state, the state becomes the thing that replaces every other role that God would normally have. The moral structure of our culture now is governed by the state and not by God. The state becomes the great provider, the great rectifier of sin, our object of hope for the future, the final judge and arbiter of all justice. Instead of God, we put it in the hands 
of human beings. So plenty of people worship the idol of the state. And they've given it all the powers and the responsibilities of God, sometimes without even knowing what they have done. Um, something, happened in, something happened in Alberta, Canada, in the city of Ed, Edmonton, almost two weeks ago. A pastor by the name of James Coates, the pastor of Grace Life Church in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, was arrested and thrown into jail for having his church open and having services. They had, for a few weeks before he was arrested, uh, the city had actually sent police into, uh, into their worship services to sit there and to infiltrate and see what was actually going on so that they could build up charges against him. And sure enough, they built up enough charges against him that they threw him into prison. Now, it's been almost two weeks now. He is still in prison. He's actually officially been in what they call uh, COVID protocol lockdown. What that means is a pastor for having his church open in Canada is in solitary confinement and has only been able to talk to his wife a couple of times, and that's it. This is a text message that his wife sent to the elders of the church. She asked the elders of the church to, um, to post this text because they wanted prayer. They wanted people to know what was going on. So I wanted to read some of her text to the elders of her church so that we can hear what's happening inside of Canada. James, so this is his wife. James has been in isolation in a cell block since yesterday morning. His hearing didn't go very well. He could walk if he just sets aside his God, given pastoral duties, but he can't do that. He has a hearing today, this is maybe 10 days ago, to set a court date for his own charges. They're trying to push the court date back to June, so they want to actually physically hang on to him in prison until June. It's very possible that they will remand him until his court case. The Crown, so this is Canada, right? The Crown has called him a danger to the health and safety of Albertans. May God have mercy on our nation. I read to my children the work the Lord is doing in people through James so they can see the sacrifice of their father is not in vain. My prayer is that men will stand. They can't see that if they, they can't see, or many people cannot see that if they shut us down on this issue, they will shut us down on any issue they deem to be a danger to the health and safety of Albertans. My heart is broken. They tried him in secret. The officers lied to us and told us he wasn't there. They tried to hide him and sneak him out the back door. In the providence of God, one of our men was there. They had actually surrounded the area and had been praying. The officer only allowed him to tell him that he loved him and, were, and they were there with him. Then they pulled him away. They have remanded him as our lawyer seeks the appeal. The conditions of his release are that he would not pastor anymore. I cannot visit him. Worship of the state is a real thing, and when we replace God with the state, the state decides what is moral and immoral, what is just and what is unjust. Now, I continue. Now, we opened pretty quickly in June, and I continue to get every now and then pushback from others who will not go back to church, not our church, but other people that I've just known through the years, and they tell me, don't you dare say what's happening to you is persecution when we have real persecution going on in the world around us. Now, I get that. I'm not being lined up against a brick wall and shot just because we had church last week. I totally get that. But being thrown in prison because you are preaching is persecution. I don't care what else you want to call it. And I'll tell you what, 
those people who have told me that I should not have church open and those people who say in our culture we should not have church open, most of them have already given up. All it took was the threat of a fine or the threat of something else, and they just said this whole gathering together thing, this whole Jesus Christ thing, I don't need it anymore. The opposition's too great. The book of Proverbs tells us if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. We endure. We endure. We endure. Our witness is more important than and in the end is more powerful than opposition. And when we look again at the church in Pergamum, like Smyrna, it's one of the reasons we put these letters together. There had been death in their ranks. Jesus even names one of them, Antipas. They were holding fast, he says, to the name of Christ. And they were resisting the pressures of denying Christ. And this is what Jesus commends them for. Now, they had made some mistakes. He says, but I have this against you. There are some among you who follow the path of Balaam. There are even some among you who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And again, we need to understand as much as we can about what that means, why that context, why those details are important. Again, the Nicolaitans, this is the second time we've seen them. We saw them originally in the Ephesian church because the Ephesians didn't like them. We don't know exactly what they taught, but we know that Jesus didn't like it. <laughs> so if Jesus says the teaching of the Nicolaitans, stay away from it, we should stay away from it. So I officially denounced the teaching of the Nicolaitans, whatever it was, right? But then the teaching of Balaam, we know a lot more about Balaam. His story happens in Numbers 22 through 24. No, uh, Balaam was hired by the Moabite king Balak to curse the people of God. And he wouldn't do it. He knew he shouldn't do it. And every time he tried to do it, he'd open his mouth, and instead of cursing, blessing would come out. One day while he's on the road and on the way to go curse the people of God, the donkey kicks him off and the donkey talks to Balaam and says, I'm smarter than you are. <laughs> Don't do this. But in the end, what Balaam did was this. He taught Balak how to intermingle the Moabites with the Israelites so that they could sneak their worship into the Israelite camp. And the Israelites began to worship other gods. So instead of that sort of throat punch of cursing the people of God and waiting for fire to fall, the earth to open up, it was the subtle backdoor move of, well, you can worship these other gods too. You can still worship your God, but, you know, our God is, is just as cool, just as powerful, just as good. We're to pull this other God into our home as well. And Jesus says, I have this against you because some of you have have brought these other religions in, and you're, you're, you're treating these other religions the same as your worship of your God, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The term for this is syncretism, the belief that all these religions are basically the same, that it really doesn't matter which one of these gods that you worship, which one of these ideologies you follow. They're all just kind of basically the same, and you can hold to as many of them as you want to. You can sort of pick and choose. And God says, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. 
There's actually a lot of that going on right now in the Christian church. And friends, any teaching that downplays or disagrees with Christ's own words is a falsehood that is designed to separate you from the grace of Jesus Christ. Here's what Jesus says about his own uniqueness. John 14, verse 6. He's answering the disciples' questions about show us the Father, show us the way. And Jesus says this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That's pretty straightforward. And if there are these other teachings that just sort of creep in the world around us that say, well, that's not really true, they're all basically the same. All of that is designed to separate us from the grace of Jesus Christ. So friends, recognize this. Endurance for the Christians in Pergamum, endurance for you and me, will require that we hold to the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. This is not at all a popular belief, but it requires that we hold to the uniqueness of Jesus Christ in the face of whatever peer pressure that we face. So he warns them against these false teachings. And then he says there in verse 16, like he talked to with the Ephesians, therefore repent. I need you to drop that. I need you to change your, way, change your ways. I need you to draw nearer to me. I need this right and pure and complete intimate relationship with you myself. And the warning he gives with this repentance is interesting. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. One of the themes of the book of Revelation is of Jesus Christ as the divine warrior. He says, I'm the one who holds this double-edged sword. We read at the end of Revelation 19, he's the one who actually comes with a double-edged sword. And he warns them, I am coming with the double-edged sword to lay judgment upon all of humanity. And he's warning them. I need you to be on the right side of that. Repent, endure, stay close to me, stay close to me. So the warning in Pergamum is that if they are not careful, they will find themselves on the wrong side of the battle. That's the point of that little verse. It says, so I need you to hear the Spirit is saying to his church, and then the promise of conquering. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So to the one who conquers, there are two images that Jesus gives here to the church in Pergamum. And they're both interesting. The first is this, the hidden manna. So he's referring back to the story of the wandering in the wilderness. They didn't know where food was going to come from. So God gives them manna every morning. And it becomes this, this image, this foreshadowing of what they're going to receive in Jesus Christ. So I'm going to give you, now you remember that sustenance in the desert. What I will give you is what is hidden manna. I will give you of myself. It even hints at the Messiah's feast Again, in Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb, when we will all sit down and we will feast with Jesus Christ and we will be with him face to face. This is what I will give you. I will give you myself and I will give you eternity with me. It reminds us of, of something Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 35. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This hidden manna is the bread of life, Jesus Christ. 
And we'll never hunger again spiritually the closer we get to Jesus. And then he promises them this white stone with a new name. Now, this is actually a little bit of a mystery to understand exactly what this means. But white stones in this city and in this culture um, actually served a lot of purposes inside of their world. This is the way jurors would vote on guilt or innocence. Black stones for guilt, white stones for innocence. White stones with names or, or other things carved on it would be used as like tickets of admission to events. You could only get in if you had one of these stones with the right thing written on it. So it was actually used as admission. And then in the Roman world, when gladiators would, uh, would actually gain their freedom, they'd be given a white stone with their name written on it. And so it was forever proof that I'm no longer a slave, I'm no longer a gladiator, but I am actually a free man. Whatever it is, is it makes direct connection back to the beginning of this letter when Jesus says, you held fast to my name. You didn't drop the name of Jesus Christ. You didn't defame the name of Jesus Christ. So when you conquer, I'm going to give you this stone, and it's going to have a new name on it. You're the only one who's going to know this name. I'm going to write it, and I know it. I'm going to give it to you, and you know it. Friends, this is stunning. If we endure, if we endure clinging to the name of Jesus Christ, We will receive a name from him that will be ours forever. And that name will carry with it the profound intimacy that exists between the individual Christian and the Lord of all creation. It's a beautiful image of that intimacy that Christ gives us. When we conquer, there's going to be a name that only you and I know. I've got another story for you this morning. This is, this is a big day. It's story time today. I want to tell the story of um, a bishop by the name of Polycarp who is widely recognized to be sort of the first major martyr of the early church. He died in 155 A.D. At least he's one of the first names that we know and the, the details of his story are interesting. Polycarp was a bishop in the city in the region, and he had um, gained so much influence and and so much uh, growth of the church where he was that he was being pursued um, during a period of time of Roman persecution of the church. And the local Roman proconsul, the, the governor, had written for permission to track down and imprison uh, Christians, and he had received permission to do that. So he goes straight after Polycarp. Polycarp didn't want to leave where he was, but the believers in the church convinced him to move outside of the city and live inside of one of their houses for a while. So the Romans hunted him down, and they found him in his house. Now, things, interesting things about Polycarp is that he was a living disciple of John the Revelator. So Polycarp was a disciple of John who was a disciple of Jesus Christ. So he's kind of a, a big deal inside of the life of the early church. But once Polycarp was arrested, he was brought into the arena and he was brought into the arena before the proconsul in the city. And the proconsul, the Roman proconsul, is asking Polycarp to deny Jesus Christ on penalty of death. 
He threatens Polycarp with animals. And Polycarp says, if God's creatures want to consume me, God's creatures can go ahead and back and forth in church history. The Roman governor says this, reproach Christ and I will set you free. And Polycarp responds like this, 86 years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king? And my Savior. So they tied him to a post and they lit him on fire and he died. He has never done me wrong. He has been faithful to me for 86 years. I will not turn my back on him. Carp knew what we need to learn. Jesus is all we need. He is more than all of that. Friends, this is important. Jesus didn't swoop in and save him from trial or save him from death. That doesn't appear to have bothered Polycarp at all. He didn't consider that faithlessness on the part of Christ. He still considered God to be faithful. Standing in that arena, threatened, about ready to be burned alive. And he says, my God is faithful to me. And I will be faithful to him. He knew what he had been promised. You see, Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. That's where he came from. This letter was written to him. He knew what he had been promised. He will not be touched by the second death. He will be given a crown of life that no Roman governor can ever take away from him. He had read the Apostle Paul who said this in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In distress, in confusion, even in opposition, what Jesus gives is the greatest gift he can give us. He gives us himself, both now and forever. Let's pray.